Welcome to Profiles, a weekly program that introduces members of our community along with visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, and other notable figures to the WFIU audience. I'm Yael Cassander, and our guest today is Judith Barter. Judith Barter is the Field McCormick Chair and Curator of American Art at the Art Institute of Chicago. She's the author or co-author of many books, catalogs, and exhibitions on American art from colonial times through the 20th century. Barter received her B.A. from Indiana University and her Ph.D. from the University of Massachusetts. In 1999, she was selected by the New York Times as a notable American curator and was selected by the Chicago Tribune as Chicagoan of the Year. Congrats for the arts in 2005. In 2014, she curated the exhibition Art and Appetite, American Painting, Culture, and Cuisine at the Art Institute, and she's been invited back to the IU Bloomington campus as part of Themester 2014, Eat, Drink, Think, Food from Art to Science. Welcome, Judy, to Profiles. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We're glad you're back in Bloomington. I'd love to know more about your experience here to get things started. Who did you study with, and, and what was your experience like? Well, that, that question requires me to go back, 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 back in time. Um, my trip here, I realized, and I did the math, I have not been to Bloomington since the day I graduated 42 years ago. So uh, some things looked familiar, and everything else looks different. (laughs) (laughs) And I um, studied history here, but the real turning point in my um, undergraduate career was having to take an elective the second semester of my junior year. And I chose an art history course that was then taught by Charles Hochstausen, who I left Indiana, I don't know quite when, but he ended up as the director of the Bush Risinger Museum at Harvard University. And he taught a course on 20th century modern art that was uh, life-changing for me. Why do you think it was so influential for you? I think because um, I had been sort of studying straight history, you know, political history, social history, and the introduction of art history into that made me think about history as culture. And in the end, that's what I got my PhD in was cultural history, so that we can look at history um, and culture through literature and art. And to me, that's much more meaningful and much more rewarding than just through, say, political history um, or presidential history or the history of individuals. It's to me, the history of an entire culture is important. and, And that Uh, books and paintings and sculptures reflect the culture of the time, no artist works outside his or her culture. So that class really turned things for you um, and got you on the path of material culture and specifically art Mm -hmm. history. And then you went on to do your your master's? I did my master's at Illinois. Um, I was an Illinois resident, so it was much cheaper. (laughs) But at that time, in the late 70s, the NEA, National Endowment for the Arts, was sponsoring museum training programs. I know the University of Michigan had one. University of Illinois had another. So I went uh, to the Illinois program, which provided me with a master's in art history as well as a certification in museum studies. What was important about that was that I had to do an internship. And I interned at the St. Louis Art Museum, and these were long internships. They were uh, year-long, a whole year. 
And uh, after the first year, they hired me. So I was an assistant curator there for a couple of years. Many art historians come to a place in their career where they have to make a decision about going into the world of strictly scholarship and publishing and teaching or the world of objects. Uh, You chose, obviously, the latter. I always wanted to be in the museum world. I have taught and I enjoy teaching, but I really like that, that visceral connection to objects. And I find the curatorial career to be so varied. No day is routine because in the world I'm in, I'm not only looking for objects for the collection, but I'm fundraising to buy those objects for the collection. And um, administration is a great deal of what I do, um, putting together um, exhibitions, uh, American exhibitions for the Art Institute is part of what I do. So I wear many hats, and that to me is very enjoyable. So you are the, the chief curator of American art, which seems like a dizzying responsibility and great honor. You are stewarding some of the most beloved works of American art, uh, things that are immediately recognizable for so many Americans. Grant Wood's American Gothic, uh, Hopper's Nighthawks, Mm -hmm. uh, images that are probably better known even in parody to most people than in the original, but the originals exist and they're in that building. So tell me a little bit about the responsibilities and the challenges that come with directing such a magnificent collection? Well, when we plan exhibition programs or even um, lecture programs, any kind of of programming, we try to focus on the strengths of our permanent collection. That's very important. And so um, Edward Hopper, for example, is a perfect exhibition for the Art Institute to have done. Mary Cassatt was a perfect exhibition for the Art Institute to have done because we have strong holdings in those areas. We're working on um, a Sargent exhibition for a few years from now. Again, we're loaded with fine Sargent portraits and some landscapes. So you sort of want to play from your strengths (laughs) in your programming and in your collecting. That said, In collecting, you also want to fill gaps because you want the best rounded uh, collection that you can possibly have. One of the more important acquisitions I made in the last few years was a Thomas Hart Benton cotton pickers painting from 1945 based on sketches from his trip through the South in 1928. This painting had not been seen in public view. It was in a private collection since around 1970. Um, And we managed to buy it from the owners. The Art Institute, uh, oddly enough, we have one of the greatest John Stuart Currys. We, of course, as you said, American Gothic by Grant Wood and Nighthawks by Edward Hopper. A very important Sheeler self-portrait. We had no Thomas Hart Benton. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a case where that gap had to be filled. And it took... It probably took me 10 to 12 years to do that because you're just not buying a Benton. You have to buy a museum-quality Benton, and many of them are already in museum collections. So it took a long time to find this one. What are the kinds of decisions that go into that in terms of deaccessioning certain things, I assume, in order to to make an important acquisition like that? We did. We, we have, you know, donors that we approach for this kind of thing. But we, yes, we did do some deaccessioning of lesser quality works in order to make this, uh, this purchase possible. And you, 
When you deaccession, you have to be very judicious. It's not based on my taste or anyone's taste. It's based on whether we have secondary examples of an artist's work in the collection. We ha- if we have a better example, we're going to keep that. We would sell, sell the more minor example. Whether we feel an artist's work has stood the test of time, if we have paintings in storage that have not been on view in 30 or 40 years, are they ever going to go on view? You have to weigh those things. The collection is sacrosanct. You do not sell pictures to pay operating expense. If I sell a picture, it's to buy another picture. Mm-hmm. I don't sell a picture in order to pay the staff or to turn the lights on or to fund an exhibition. And that is general operating dogma in museums. And yet some museums have tried to get around that to pay operating costs. It's not illegal yet, but it is certainly immoral in my view. The Art Institute hasn't encountered any challenges of that sort? Absolutely not. Our Uh, trustees are (laughs) (laughs) well-educated. And you have the, the legal infrastructure to protect it. Yes. Yeah, what a relief. Yes. Yeah, it's institutions that don't have the legal documents that go along with governance, like strong deaccessioning policies that get into trouble. You want those policies in place. I'm speaking with Judith Barter, the Field McCormick Chair and Curator of American Art at the Art Institute of Chicago. I'm Yael Cassander, and you're listening to Profiles. Your Mary Casaccio in mm-hmm. 1998 was really groundbreaking. You spent a lot of time researching her, and, and one source that I consulted told me that you were even dreaming about Mary Cassatt <laughs> at one point. It was a real labor of love, it sounds like. Tell us about the important Mary Cassatt painting you have there, the exhibition that you put together in 98, and why you think her reputation has been underrated for so long. I thought you were going to ask me to tell you the dream. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to hear the dream. (laughs) Well, the the dream was that we were looking for a very important cassette painting, and we we, we hadn't been able to find it. And um, I had this dream one night when there was a knock on my door, and I opened it, and it was a woman standing there looking a lot like the character that plays Miss Jane Marple on PBS. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I said, oh, oh. Why, Mary Cassatt? <laughs> and she said, yes, dear. Don't worry. I'm here to help you. <laughs> oh. And we did find the painting. <laughs> a great sign. Yeah, a great <laughs> sign. Um, Cassatt is such an interesting, erudite uh, person. And, of course, she was a woman in a male world. She was an American, a Philadelphian, who chose to spend her life in Paris and environs. And so she was an outsider, in so many ways, gender-wise, nationality-wise. And she just kept plugging away. And she was so clearly talented. Uh, Edgar Duga asked her to join the original Impressionist group, which was founded in 1874. And she started showing with them around 1878. She was the only American. Barrett Morisot showed with them, so she wasn't the only woman, but she was the only American. And... um, her work was, was brilliant. It was really brilliant. And uh, some of her loge pictures of women sitting in boxes at the opera with mirrors behind them and and binoculars and, and optical equipment, which was so important in the 1870s, light and optics in those boxes, really caught the eye of uh, Edouard Manet. And um, 
his famous picture, the the bar at the uh, Folies Berger, has uh, a reference to Cassatt in it in the, in the background where the all of the people are watching and the barmaid is being reflected in a mirror just the way Cassatt's women were reflected in the loge mirrors and there's a client ordering a drink and over his shoulder you see a woman with binoculars leaning out and, and looking at the crowd in just the same way that Cassatt showed a man leaning out of a box at the opera looking at the women in the audience with binoculars. And so Cassatt's painting preceded Manet's Folie Berger. Yes. Her painting was 1879 and his was 1882. Wow. And there is a there is evidence that points to a direct correlation there. I think so. Yeah. The visual evidence. Yeah. That's yeah. remarkable. But un- uh, unfortunately, Cassatt was relegated to the realm of women painters. Uh, her subject matter of that often features mothers and children has, in a certain way, ghettoized her uh, over the over the years. Yes, it has. It has. Women artists were sort of considered a category of their own. But the other interesting thing about Cassatt is that, for someone who spent her entire life practically in Paris, uh, the French don't know her work. And most of her work ended up back in the United States. There are very few cassettes in collections in France. Um, There are some very good ones in Paris in public collections. But for that reason, I think she's far, far better known in the United States than she was in France. Well, your exhibition went a long way in promoting her. Yes. And and re-envisioning her. The idea, it was sort of a revisionist idea, that I had is that Cassatt had suffered from a reputation as being, oh, this kindly old lady who paints women and children, isn't that the sweetest thing? And what I tried to show was that her choice of subject matter in painting women and children within the cultural context of France in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s was very much a feminist statement. In the 80s, in France, the Camille Say law was passed, which 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 provided secondary education to girls. The divorce laws were changed so that women could sue for divorce, which they'd never been able to do before. And then there was a health movement about the importance of not taking your children to a wet nurse, but breastfeeding your own children was important, and the elemental bond between mother and child was important. Because legally, women and their children were the chattel of the husbands. So as the laws and the and the culture began to change, I think her work became increasingly relevant, and I don't think that it had been looked at that way before. By the time of World War I, uh, she's an ardent feminist and talks about the fact that men have really messed up the world, and <laughs> if women women could solve this World War situation, or it might not have happened if women had been in power, that, that kind of thinking. So yes, I think it it was um, sort of a revisionist statement about the importance of women and children in their own right and not as the property of men. That is so important to to put her back in that cultural context. If you think about her paintings being used as kindly illustrations for greeting cards, Mm -hmm. even now, it's hard to remember the ideology that was informing her choice in that subject matter. So it's it's wonderful to hear about her role as as almost an activist. Yes, and she and as a painter too, she was a brilliant Japanist. And um, her painting at the Art Institute, the Child's Bath, is a is a fabulous example of 
pattern upon pattern and a, and a uh, flattened perspective. The, the whole room sort of tilts up. Uh, and she was a, a great colorist as well. And she has been fully admitted, I would say, now into the ranks of the uh, greatest painters of the 19th century. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Just earlier this, this year, there was a Degas and Cassatt show at the National Gallery. Yes. Yeah. Showing the the influence of that they not just that Dugas had on Cassatt, which was always been the conventional wisdom, but the way that it went back and forth, and they worked on a on a series of prints together called Night and Day. These were two collaborators experimenting together and feeding off each other intellectually, and, and they they saw themselves as equals. Well, it must be gratifying to you to have, in a certain way, helped to establish or reestablish Cassatt's stature. It is, although I have to say, um, I don't look back very much. Once I finish a project, you know, in six months it's gone, and I'm on, I'm on to the next thing. Uh, one thing I've, it's difficult for me to understand is how people can spend their entire careers studying one little area of art history or one artist. I couldn't do that. I just, I just, I have too many other interests. Speaking of which. I think people would be really interested to know how you go about staging this important collection there at the Art Institute. You're dealing with, what, a a, a thousand paintings? Yeah. uh, American paintings and and 2,500 decorative objects? Well, we're an unusual department in that we are not to say, you know, the print and drawing department is is organized uh, on the basis of um, the medium, paper as the ground, or the photography department, same thing. The American department at the Art Institute is sort of organized culturally so that I'm in charge of all of the American painting, sculpture, and the decorative arts, which is furniture, painting, glass. And they are all integrated in the display. And that sort of goes along with my philosophy of understanding a culture. So that while it's chronologically arranged, um, we do have 18th century furniture with 18th century portraits and 18th century silver and so forth and so on, right through the 20th century, right up until about 1960. When you first got there, you made some major changes in terms of the exhibition spaces. Well, I said I wouldn't come to the Art Institute unless they allowed me to, to gut the American galleries and redo them. And Jim Wood was the director, and he said, okay. And that's what we did. We had sort of a rabbit warren-like space, uh, you know, twists and turns and big pictures on small walls. And and so we ended up gutting the space to make it more gracious and more elegant, toned down the the colors, made the colors of the walls relevant to the period of time of the objects on them, but not so historically correct that they're jarring in any way. They just suggest uh, a period of time. And again, the, the better integration of three-dimensional and two-dimensional objects. How about these really popular paintings that you are in charge of? <laughs> How on earth do you manage all of the many, many requests that must come in for not only borrowing those paintings, but also uh, reproduction rights and things like that? Well, reproduction rights are handled by a different department. Thank I don't goodness. have to do that. Um, <laughs> Some, I occasionally get emails from the rights and, and repros people because somebody has asked for permission to paint a parody of something on a public billboard or something. And, 
And generally, we discourage them. (laughs) Because one of the things I feel strongly about is that we want our works of art to be known, but we want them to be known as they truly are, not as somebody has changed them, for example. And so we're also careful when they're used in books or even commercial activities to control the cropping. We really want people to see the original work of art. Right. So many people might be surprised to know that Marilyn Monroe and James Dean are not in Hopper's original painting. (laughs) Exactly. I have a worse story than that. We got um, email from um, a political group that was petitioning Congress to have American Gothic repainted. And they wanted the heads taken out and Ronald and Nancy Reagan's heads inserted uh, because they thought this was a great American picture and this was what it should look like. And it was so it was so wrongheaded on so many levels. First of all, this group didn't understand that this was an original work of art, <gasps> unique, you know. I guess they just thought it was some sort of cyber image that could be changed and disseminated. Sometimes you just shake your head, you wonder, how am I ever going to explain this to anybody? <laughs> wow. Well, and that really brings up another issue that's larger, which is that a museum plays an important role in public education. A museum is there for a reason that's different from, you know, a browsable collection on the internet. How do you envision your role there directing this collection and interacting with the public in a way to sort of raise awareness of what an original work of art is, for example? Well, the conventional wisdom right now in museums is that the way to get the public interested in coming to the museum is to put the collection online. So there's been a great emphasis in getting every object, and that's 350,000 of them at the Art Institute, photographed with uh, at least tombstone information, which is what we call artist, name, date, medium, credit line, et cetera, et cetera onto the web, and then people can go to our website and see what we have in American art or see what we have in French painting, et cetera, et cetera, and that they are then want to come down and see the originals. I think the jury is out still on whether people are, are just satisfied with large computer screen images uh, off our website and feel that they've seen it versus those who actually say, I want to go see the original. I don't know if we're going to be the, the, the victims of too much information sharing or whether it will actually increase attendance. Right now, it does not seem to have increased attendance. Hmm. But I wonder if it does enhance cultural awareness in some way. Well, it does. I get a lot more loan requests. <laughs> well, <right. laughs> People wanting to borrow things. What about the proverbial man in the street being able to come in and look at a work of art? Is there something about that encounter with an authentic work of art that is essential and that should be defended and protected? Well, of course. I mean, it changed my life. I went to um, an art museum with my mother, actually, the Art Institute of Chicago, where I'm now employed, when I was 9 or 10 years old and uh, was blown away by what I saw there. And I've been an avid museum-goer ever since. I mean, I work in one, but but even if I didn't, I would be an avid museum goer. And I think that when I go into a museum, and I'm later I'm going to go to the IU Art Museum, I always come away with two or three objects that I will re- remember always that 
I had some sort of a connection to or that I thought were were brilliant. And that's very satisfying to me. It's as satisfying to me as seeing a a world-class play or um, a really brilliant movie or any other work of art or having read a truly great novel. And that experience is not something that can be simulated, you would probably attest, by the virtual internet-mediated experience? I don't think so, no, because the internet experience is a flattening experience. And paintings, we we refer to them as two-dimensional, but they are three-dimensional in many ways. You you see the the surface of the paint and the texture of the paint. Um, You don't really get that on the internet so much, even with good digital photography. I, I just think there's nothing quite like it. And the other thing, of course, is scale. People are sort of stunned when they see uh, how small the Mona Lisa is. And likewise with American Gothic. It's not a big picture. And yet uh, they've seen it probably on billboards and other places, and they think it must be huge. But it's very intimate. I'm speaking with Judith Barter, the Field McCormick Chair and Curator of American Art at the Art Institute of Chicago. I'm Yael Cassander, and you're listening to Profiles. Judy, you're back on the IU campus as part of Themester 2014, Eat, Drink, Think, Food from Art to Science. What occasioned your visit is the fact that you just uh, mounted this sumptuous show in uh, Chicago on the, on the subject of painting and food, Art and Appetite, American Painting, Culture, and Cuisine. Americans have made art on the subject of food for centuries, and your premise in this show is that we can learn a lot about our history and culture from this work. Let's talk first about still life paintings. Sometimes an apple is not just an apple, (laughs) is what I learned from reading your exhibition catalog. Still life paintings have been made for centuries across cultures, but when an American painting is a collection of, of edible objects, it's not just because they're there. Can you uh, bring up some salient examples from colonial times? What, what did the various fruits and objects displayed in these paintings tell us? Well, st- as you said, still life painting is uh, probably the oldest form of painting. And there are stories, of course, and plenty about Zuxis, who painted grapes so realistically that the birds came down to try to, to eat them, to peck at them. But Somewhere along the line, still life painting became sort of relegated to uh, a secondary form of painting. And Sir Joshua Reynolds in the 18th century, uh, he was president of the Royal Academy in England, sort of said the most important form of history is, uh, of painting rather, is history painting, that you're showing great events happening. And the second most important was portraits of great people. And the third was landscape that could inspire emotion and sublimity um, in in our hearts. And that way down at the bottom, he relegated still life painting because it was just mere imitation. And yet, if you look at 17th century Holland and 18th and 19th century America, these sort of commercial societies, still life painting was what everybody had and what everybody liked. And so it was far more important than it's ever been given credit to be. And we look at paintings sometimes. We look at the portraits of of John Singleton Copley, American painter in Boston, who painted beautiful women in fine satins holding flowers or fruits. And, And these pictures, of course, were meant to show social status. And the flowers and the fruits in those pictures, which are still lives in and of themselves, 
often show or refer to the fecundity of his female subjects. Well, one picture in the show shows Mrs. Ezekiel Goldthwaite of Boston reaching across a beautiful round mahogany table, her arm outstretched reaching for a peach. There, there's a bowl of peaches and pears and apples. And everything in the picture is wonderfully round. The fruit is round, the bowl is round, the table is a round table. Uh, Mrs. Goldthwaite herself is quite round. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact of the matter is Mrs. Goldthwaite's uh, source of income was pretty much dependent on that bowl of fruit. She had fabulous gardens um, that were renowned throughout uh, the Massachusetts colony and made a lot of money through her orchards and her and her gardens. So in this case, she's showing us the source of her wealth. Mm. It sounds like, from the way you've established the preeminence of, of the Royal Academy and Joshua Reynolds, that, that painting still lifes was a bit of a, of a rebel move on the part of the uh, uh, American painters who were still very much in the sway of the Royal Academy and its edicts. So, well, cer- certainly um, the Peel family, the patriarch Charles Wilson Peel, was not happy that his sons were painting still lives. He thought that they should be painting portraits. Now, he may have thought, he probably did think that portraits were more important works of art than still lives, but he also knew that his sons could make more money painting portraits uh, because they would have rich clients who would want their portraits painted, whereas he wasn't clear who who wanted still life paintings painted. Nonetheless, they um, were a family of horticulturists, They had gardens in Belfield outside of Philadelphia, the family home. And they had connections with the Bartram brothers, who were very important horticulturists in Philadelphia. This is all sort of this period of 1740 through about 1810. The Bartrams collected plant specimens and sent them back to London to be classified. American plants, unique qualities to them. And uh, even today, I think English horticulturists will tell you that when you go to look at the beautiful English gardens with their many varieties of roses, about 90% of it came from America (laughs) (laughs) early on. To go back to the Peel family, as early as 1800, they had working furnaces that heated their greenhouses, which was pretty remarkable. I mean, they they were engineers and scientists and you name it. And so they forced fruits in those greenhouses. And some of the fruits that Raphael Peel painted certainly are fruits that were from the greenhouse. So we're seeing in, say, the paintings of Raphael Peel and in that portrait of Mrs. Goldthwaite, fruit represented as a source of national pride to a certain extent. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, And and, uh, certainly of enlightenment interest. The American Enlightenment was certainly centered in Philadelphia. All of these experiments went on there. And yes, it was a source of great pride. There's a sense also about the bounty of the new world. The fact that fruits of the land are being portrayed and not so much the fineries and the man-made objects represents a certain pride in the land itself. True, although there are some still life paintings that contain ceramics. And this is pretty interesting, too, because one of Raphael Peel's still life has a sugar bowl and creamer that we identified and actually found for the exhibition. And that's Chinese export porcelain. 
which means he's, this is painted shortly after the War of 1812, which many historians will say was the real American Revolution because we defeated the British yet again, but we did it on the seas, which meant that the American nation was now a naval force and a global force to be reckoned with and had great trade with Europe and with China as well. And so you see these two Chinese-made objects which refer to the idea that we're a global civilization, we have the wealth to trade and bring in these objects from abroad. Also in that same painting is a covered glass vase filled with little strawberries, probably grown at Belfield, probably forced fruit. And I think that refers to the first uh, American glass house, also outside of Philadelphia, around 1790 that produced this kind of glassware. So it's pride for American manufacturing, pride with American trade, and pride about American native produce. All of that in a seemingly unassuming little still life <laughs> painting. We also sometimes see spiritual manifestations or, or spiritual associations in these paintings, especially when you get into paintings that involve alcohol. <laughs> We're seeing that whole conflicted relationship between the American psyche, the American spirit, and the consumption of alcohol. Well, Americans have always loved to drink, and they have always been equally guilty about it. And, uh, I mean, no other country could have come up with prohibition. (laughs) (laughs) And interestingly enough, we don't think much about it anymore, but in the 19th century, there were two equally important issues that divided society. Everybody knows about abolition, but temperance was the other issue that divided society, and it was a huge huge problem. It started in this country as early as the 1820s and 30s because we were a nation of drinkers. People didn't drink water. They had hard cider for breakfast. If you were a laborer, you had uh, your elevenses around 11 o'clock, which was a big old shot of whiskey or rum. And that was accepted uh, as a benefit of employment. If you were an employer and you didn't provide your labor force with this, you were in trouble. Again at 4 o'clock, they had drams and other shots of spirits. And there are accounts in the 18th century of town hall meetings where, you know, 100 people showed up and put away 175 hot toddies, which was rum with a poker, heating it, sort of a hot buttered rum, Mm. big bowls of punch, which was every form of alcohol mixed together, And thank God they didn't drive then (laughs) because they must have really staggered or crawled home. In 1830, there was an account of uh, the general stores, which is where uh, liquor was sold in New Hampshire. And one historian extrapolated that in New Hampshire in 1830, the average consumption of spirits now, not, not wine, cider, and beer, but spirits, was around seven gallons per person, per year, per annum. Wow. That's a lot. That's, That's a lot of booze. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was that equally distributed among the with the women? Oh, everybody drank. So mm-hmm. we see, though, in the various paintings, alcohol represented in a restrained way, in a quasi-religious way, and um, all kinds of other ways that seem to manifest this anxiety about intoxication and also about sensual pleasure. True. The temperance movement was pretty hardcore, and what it was 
based on was a certain amount of reality that men got paid on Fridays and a large portion of the population drank their wages on the way home, which is why in many households, wages were supposed to be brought home directly to the woman, and she gave him some money back to go out to the bar. And there are so many cartoons, and we included a lot in the, in the, in the book of uh, women and children destitute in the street while dad's drinking at the bar in the saloon and that kind of thing. And even the artist George Calabingham shows people going to vote, election scenes where they, uh, the voters are all being bribed with alcohol. They're all drunk out of their minds, and they've sold their, their vote for a quart of moonshine. So drinking was an issue. There's, there's no question. And also in some still life paintings, you see the wine or a champagne or a sparkling wine as the centerpiece of a picture. And it's the ultimate consummation of the process of growing fruit, pressing fruit, whether it's apples for cider or uh, peaches for a peach wine or grapes. And those, those are very refined. It's interesting, too, that there were various levels of temperance. The word teetotaler is an interesting one. A lot of people think that means, oh, well, they drank tea instead of booze. When you took the temperance pledge, there were two kinds of pledges you could take. You had to sign up in a book. And if you just signed the pledge, it meant you were abstaining from spirits. You could drink wine or hard cider or beer, but no hard liquor. If you put tea next to your name, it meant total abstinence, and that meant you drank no alcohol of any kind. And the temperance movement was really a hot issue, as I said, in the 1860s and 1870s, which is when Welch's grape juice was founded by a minister and his son because there was this controversy over, well, can we drink wine at communion? I mean, it's alcohol. And uh, the churches got divided on this. And so he came up with a non-alcoholic grape juice beverage, which the Methodists still serve today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking with Judith Barter, Curator of American Art at the Art Institute of Chicago. I'm Yael Cassander. This is Profiles. Thanks for joining us. Judy, we've talked about apples and oranges, wines and spirits. Another recurring motif through centuries of American painting has been the plucked fowl. One of the earlier examples of the motif is in the painting of William Harnett, who was known for paintings of dead game, among other things, that he rendered in the trompe l'oeil style. Other painters used this highly illusionistic painting style to render peanuts and potatoes in a way that makes them look like they're right in front of you. Would you tell us about the tradition of the trompe l'oeil still life? Well, trompe l'oeil painting, which is French for fool the eye, literally, became very popular in Philadelphia around 1879. And I think one of the reasons for that, um, here's a good dissertation topic for a grad student because <laughs> I haven't sorted it all out either, but has to do with the rise of photography and the importance of photography. And Philadelphia was the center for photographic experimentation. Um, you'll remember Thomas Aikens and Edward Mybridge were in Philadelphia at that time. There were lots of optical shops that sold stereopticon viewers and all kinds of optical equipment. Interestingly, we, we, we talked a little earlier about Mary Cassatt and optical equipment. Again, it's the 1870s, but she's in Paris, and now we're talking about Philadelphia. And so I think that photography was such a revelation, particularly during the Civil War. It showed the unvarnished truth when you saw things like uh, 
Timothy O'Sullivan or Brady's pictures of uh, dead soldiers on the battlefield. Uh, that was pretty shocking to people. And, and um, Drew Gilpin, the president of Harvard, has written a wonderful book called This Republic of Grief about the realism of the Civil War, the visual realism of the Civil War. But even in those visceral photographs, they were black and white. There was no color photography yet. And photographs in that period are very, very sharp in their centrality, but unfocused around the edges. That's just part of the lens Mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of these painters wanted to show they could do it better than photography. And so Trompe-Loy paintings are, are equally sharp focused in every section of the picture. And of course, you have color. These paintings also fit in with a certain type of American humor of the period in that they were shown mostly in bars, saloons, office windows, things like that, so that the public were forced to choose whether this was really an object hanging on a wall or whether it was a painting. And oftentimes people could not tell until they touched it. Harnett's old violin was shown uh, in Cincinnati in the 1880s and at a, at a fair And they stationed policemen around it to keep people from touching it all the time to see. And so there there was a little less visual sophistication maybe in the art-looking audience of uh, 150 years ago in that they couldn't tell the difference between a painted surface or a real object hanging there. That probably wouldn't be as difficult for us today, although... The first month I was at the Art Institute, I kept getting security reports from the guards saying that a lock was falling off of a panel in the galleries. It was Harnett's, for Sunday's dinner, a picture of a chicken, where the lock is painted purposefully to look like it's it's falling off. I had to meet with them and explain to them that this was a painting and not not an object falling off the wall. So much for sophistication. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think Harnett is very interesting. He was a first-generation Irish immigrant, very poor, came from County Cork. He joined the Hibernian Society in Philadelphia, which was an organization that provided money to help Irish immigrants get on their feet here. And in Pennsylvania, at the time that this was painted... It was a huge depression and lots of strikes. And the Molly Maguires, who were an Irish sort of labor union type organization, which some people thought were terrorists, there were some murders and there were some deaths, clashes between the police and the strikers and the mine owners. And a group of Molly Maguires were hanged. And so here we have a hanging dead chicken, which is probably a reference to some political issues. It's denuded. There's a sense of immediacy about it because this chicken was alive seconds ago and now it's dead. And you can tell that because the feathers are painted still floating through the air. I think it's also a reference. This is a particularly scrawny chicken. <laughs> sort of the idea of a chicken in every pot, which some people attribute to Hubert, Herbert Hoover, uh-huh. rather. Uh-huh. But it was actually uh, King Henry IV of France who said he wanted to put a chicken in every peasant's pot on Sunday. And even in 1879, if you were an immigrant just scraping by, to have a chicken on Sunday was a huge sign of success. Uh, Most of these people had no meat in their diet at all. So I think it has uh, lots of layers of meaning for Harnett. Another picture that is a trompe l'oeil and is much more obvious than, than Harnett's 
is Descott Evans's portrait of two hanging russet potatoes, sort of hanging by their necks, if you will, against a board. And painted on that board with a little Irish shamrock are the words, the Irish question, which is evidently his suggested uh, solution to both the Irish immigration, which was huge in the 1870s and 80s. Millions came here fleeing famine, which started in the 40s but went through the through the 70s as well. And I don't know what his politics are, but this is certainly... Um, a strong statement. The other thing, I think this was painted right around 1880-81 when James Parnell came to the United States to try to raise money for the support of Irish home rule. So Ireland was a big issue in the 1880s. Mm. Do you think there was something about the immediacy of these paintings and the fact that they really spoke to the average person in the street and the subject matter, the political subtext? Oh, I think people got it. Oh, yes. I think people understood it. I think that's what's so interesting is to try to go back into that world and see what those pictures meant then because that's lost on us now. But, yes, I think people got it, and the immediacy of it was on two levels. One was sort of the joke of the political understanding, and the other part of it was, of course, the super realist painting, which people wanted to know, did somebody actually leave those potatoes there or... Or are those painted? And you could only know, of course, if you touched touched yeah. it. Yeah. I'm speaking with Judith Barter, the Curator of American Art at the Art Institute of Chicago. And since we are coming up on Thanksgiving, I thought it was very appropriate that you do have so many plucked chickens and turkeys in this <laughs> book, and also paintings about Thanksgiving itself. It's a far cry from Harnett's chicken hanging there on the door to Alice Neal's painting of a chicken in a kitchen sink that she sort of unceremoniously dumped there uh, to thaw, I imagine. Using these pictures of chickens and various fowl as a, as a launching pad, I'd like to talk about the history of Thanksgiving as codified by some of these American paintings. Well, Thanksgiving is kind of a late holiday in a way. It wasn't uh, formally made an American holiday until Abraham Lincoln made it uh, a holiday after the uh, Battle of Gettysburg. So That would of, come as a surprise, I think, to a lot of people because they think it started way back there in the 17th with, with century. With the pilgrims, yeah, no. The pilgrims had Thanksgivings, plural, days of Thanksgivings uh, that did not look anything like how we celebrate Thanksgiving. They fasted for one thing, and spent the day in church and then came home and had a little something to eat. And the first Thanksgiving, as we all learned in school, was sort of based on festivities when the Indians came to Plymouth with some deer, 20 20 deer or something, and the the, uh, colonists there put together vegetables and other things, and they all sat down and had a meal together. And that's referenced in an 18th century book. So Thanksgiving is sort of a new idea, and it was sort of based on the fall harvest in New England, where they usually did have something called Forefathers' Day, not Thanksgiving, which was to celebrate the history of New England, and it was usually in October, and the uh, bringing in of the crops. And then it became increasingly commercial, and by 1920, it was about football. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Irma Bombeck uh, famously said that... uh, It takes 18 hours to fix uh, a Thanksgiving dinner. It takes 12 minutes to eat it. 
and it is no coincidence that halftime is 12 minutes long. And 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 she was right. We've we've just commercialized Thanksgiving, not as badly as Christmas, but but almost <laughs> the same way. And I think Alice Neal's painting of the of uh, the capon thawing in the kitchen sink is really a a, a great uh, picture. First of all, it's a she's thumbing her nose at uh, pop art. <laughs> where the surfaces are very slick and everything's perfect. This is a juicy picture with lots of impasto and paint, and it's visceral. And uh, there's this dead bird <laughs> in the sink. And everybody knows it, any woman knows anyway, that that is exactly how Thanksgiving starts, with that bird draining in the sink. And she didn't have a turkey. Her son came home unexpectedly from college and said he... Can we have Thanksgiving? And she had this frozen capon, and she said, okay. And that's what what they had. You were talking about Cassatt as a feminist painter earlier, and I think this is one of the most feminist paintings I've seen. This is an unpicturesque, unromanticized vision of Thanksgiving from the woman's perspective. Yes. This this ugly thing is sitting in the sink, thawing next to the dish rags and the bottle of Ajax detergent just above it. It's from a a sort of an aerial perspective. Although it does make a a really pretty great painting and the design and the composition is fantastic. It is not Norman Rockwell. No, it is not. It's sort of like, okay, here's this dead thing. What am I going to do with it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Alice Neal was uh, quite an outrageous character from she what was. I understand. She was. <laughs> well, did you manage then to, in fact, have the Norman Rockwell painting for this exhibition? Oh, yes. Freedom from Want. Can uh, you talk about that one, Judy? Yes. Norman Rockwell did a series of four paintings based on American freedoms in um, 1941. And it was based basically on an address by FDR who was, was talking about world events and the unique place of Americans. And freedom from want was one of those, in other words, having enough to eat, never having to go hungry. And so Rockwell used this as a Thanksgiving scene. And it's sort of fascinating because there's grandma and grandpa and the whole family is gathered around and grandma's bringing in this beautifully browned, you know, cook's kitchen type of <laughs> of turkey to sit on the table. And yet the weird thing about the picture is all the rest of the table is sort of white with nothing on it to eat. There are some grapes or some nuts. I think there's a dish of celery. Jello salt molds. And pepper. Jello molds. Jello molds were very important in the 40s and 50s. And it's a it's a perfectly lily white family, you know, as you might expect from Norman Rockwell. <laughs> and uh, I've always thought it was a rather strange picture, because it's the turkey front and center that is the symbol of American life right there, and Thanksgiving is sort of a uniquely American holiday. But also remember that um, there was there was actually some food rationing there, so maybe they did eat turkey and celery. <laughs> I'm hoping they're mashed potatoes inside the white covered dish. <laughs> and the closest thing to the viewer, the still life of apples and grapes, yes. reminds me of those wax ones people used to have on their yes. dining room tables or maybe sprayed gold or something yeah. because it doesn't look very edible. No. But the turkey has just become this signifier of so much more. Exactly. And it's a great contrast with the facing picture in the catalog, the turkey by Roy Lichtenstein. Exactly, which is just made up of uh, 
bende dots, which are the, the dots that you get in printing processes that form colors and shadows, and you see them in newspapers all the time. And it's a slick supermarket-looking turkey, kind of a sickly yellow, not really browned, and not very appealing. <laughs> but again, a symbol. I think uh, a wonderful contrast is provided by this Norman Rockwell painting of Thanksgiving, Freedom from Want, with a painting that was just about contemporaneous with it, and that is your famous painting at the Art Institute, Hopper's Nighthawks. Yes. One of the authors in the catalog contrasts the two paintings. They make for a terrific comparison when you think about family, indoor, outdoor, gender roles. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the Hopper painting, of course, we have practically no food at all on display. Just a coffee cup. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a whole different way of interacting around eating and drinking. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that painting? Well, of course, uh, uh, Hopper is um, showing almost a post-depression or end-of-depression sort of topic. Diners became very popular, as were automats, as cheap places to get food after the Depression. Simple meals, sandwiches, coffee, that kind of thing. But Hopper's also showing us an urban scene, whereas Rockwell is showing us a more of a domestic scene. Hopper's showing us a a diner that operates all night long, and the Nighthawks are the people that hang out late at night, and they're in there having their coffee. And uh, there's a lack of connection in Hopper that Rockwell very successfully promotes the idea of family ties and connections with people. And Hopper, a lot of people see loneliness in Hopper. I do not. I see aloneness in Hopper. And I think those are two very different ideas that you can be alone and still connected, as we've all experienced that. And so I think Hopper's pictures are more about feeling solitude within a social arena. I find them very poetic in that in that sense, uh, that they're really about each and every one of us feeling that sense of solitude or connection or lack thereof. But within an ostensibly social milieu, the exactly. city. The city, yeah. yeah, the anonymity of the city. Now, that was 1942, but his painting presages a whole different attitude toward eating, socializing, the manufacture of food that we see in the paintings of the pop era. Oh, yeah. Hopper's terribly important to the pop artists, I think. And the the pop artists loved the commercialization of food and the the oversizing of food. Uh, Klaus Oldenburg's huge fried eggs or big hamburgers. They, They speak to the relevance of food to the American psyche but oversize it so that you cannot miss the commonplace. Yeah, I think that that Hopper is is the the precursor of the pop movement. Yeah. And food comes to be more about the presentation and the advertising, the packaging, and the mass production, as, of course, we see in the Campbell Soup cans. Oh, yeah, and and even in Tom Wesselman, um, he's has a wonderful painting in which he shows a, a bottle of Four Roses bourbon. He shows a sepia-toned photograph of the old family farm and an old portrait of George Washington. And what he's really 
comparing here is the Jeffersonian idea of a nation of small farmers, which is 18th and 19th century, and the slick commercialization of food in the present time. And the Four Roses bottle is an excellent example of that because Four Roses was started around 1888 as a very fine, straight Kentucky bourbon. It was sold in 1956, and uh, the company started making it as a colored flavored grain alcohol. So it went from being prestigious to rot gut (laughs) overnight. Sort of a comment on uh, the American presentation and production of food at that time. It's a a long, painful ride. (laughs) (laughs) But then there's Alice Waters uh, in the show and uh, Chez Panisse menus. And so we we sort of get back to the rebirth of interest in, in fine food and local ingredients and I wonder if there will be a resurgence of the still life tradition or... Well, there has been, and there's been a resurgence of trompe l'oeil uh, paintings of food. There are tons of people painting food right now, many of them uh, women painters, painting oversized, overscaled uh, jelly donuts, oozing their contents, <laughs> that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I think there is a resurgence in the painting of food right now. Our guest today has been Judith Barter, the Field McCormick Chair and Curator of American Art at the Art Institute of Chicago. I'm Yael Cassander. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.